This is Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Last Thursday, former state Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman revealed that he will be forced to close his election review office by the end of April. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the request to dismantle Gableman's review of the 2020 election results came from officials in Assembly Speaker Robin Voss's office. Voss has not yet commented on Gableman's statement. The request follows lawsuits by liberal activist groups filed against the review efforts. In a statement made on Friday, Voss said that he would like to move the investigation's focus towards resolving those lawsuits. At this time, Gableman prefers to pursue the review. A hearing is scheduled for this summer to determine Gableman's authority on demanding the jailing of city officials for not cooperating with his subpoenas. Governor Tony Evers vetoed over 40 bills last Friday. The bills included election changes, parental authority of masks in schools, and limitations on the governor's emergency powers. One election-related bill would have banned municipalities from covering election-related costs with grant funds. This bill would also have prevented clerks from fixing absentee ballot errors. Another bill would have allowed parents to have final say over whether a school is able to implement a mask mandate for students. Although many Wisconsin school districts have dropped their mask mandates, Evers' veto retains the decision-making power over mask requirements in schools. In the event of another COVID-19 surge, parents would not have the final say if districts chose to mandate masks in schools, according to Evers' veto. The Capital Times reports that Evers also signed 35 bills into law on Friday, including the decision to close the state's juvenile correctional facility, Lincoln Hills. Wisconsin's largest renewable energy plant has been approved for construction in Dane County, The 465-megawatt plant is expected to help the state transition away from fossil fuel power while protecting the environment and human health. According to Wisconsin Public Radio, the anticipated Koshkanong Solar Energy Center will cost $649 million. The project is expected to input $140 million into the economy and create 600 jobs during construction. The project has been met with opposition from nearby towns. Resident concerns include loss of farmland, safety concerns, and effects on aesthetics and property values. Construction on the plant will begin either later this year or early 2023. The plant is expected to be in service by 2024. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the owners of the downtown Madison building that hold Paisan's restaurant are moving to demolish the building. Greg Rice, representing the building's owners, issued a public notice of plans for the demolition due to structural concerns. Owners of Paisans are disappointed in Rice's decision. Their expected long-term investment in the restaurant may be cut short with the demolition. Last year, the building was repeatedly shut down by the city over structural concerns. Workers in the building claim that they could occasionally feel the building sway beneath them, and large cracks have formed in the foundation of the building. Rice hopes to submit an application to the city's plan commission by May, so that the demolition request will be considered at the plan commission's meeting at the end of June. If accomplished, destruction would begin this summer and continue into fall.
And now, on to today's top stories. Last Friday, the Urban League of Greater Madison held their groundbreaking for the new Black Business Hub, a multi-purpose entrepreneurial space for Black and other residents of color in Madison. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has more. The cold and snow did not hamper the spirits of those who attended the Black Business Hub's groundbreaking event, which featured speakers from the community as well as state and local officials, including Governor Tony Evers and Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway. The proposed four-story, 76,000-square-foot Black Business Hub was first announced in 2020 and will hold spaces to support at least 100 Black-owned businesses and entrepreneurs. Dr. Ruben Anthony is the president of the Urban League of Greater Madison, He says that the hub will do more than just provide retail space for black-owned businesses. African-American businesses and small businesses are often good at working in their business. Um, They have the skill to do the business, but not sometimes the time to work on their business. So we'll provide training and educational assistance. We'll provide coaching and mentoring. We'll provide shared services. Sometimes you have to have, uh, be able to take advantage of Um, mass purchasing, and we'll be able to do that commodities of scale uh, and and be able to buy marketing services, HR services, technology services at affordable prices. Governor Tony Evers spoke about the importance of the hub and why he decided to help fund the Black Business Hub through the Neighborhood Investment Fund program. That program was started last year to award grants to projects throughout Wisconsin to help people and communities bounce back after the COVID-19 pandemic. I think it's safe to say that uh, this is exactly what the business hub will be doing to connecting the connecting the dots between entrepreneurs and small business owners, not only to open brick and mortar shops, but to help them with financial assistance and access the capital, technical assistance and networking, all the while creating jobs right here in the community. As of Friday morning, the Black Business Hub had raised around $17 million, enough to begin construction, but still short of their $25 million goal. That changed during the press conference as U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin made a surprise virtual visit to announce the Hub will receive a $1 million federal grant, bringing them closer to their goal. Another announcement at Friday's groundbreaking came from Summit Credit Union, who announced that they will be opening a full-service branch within the Black Business Hub, which will help operate as a financial wellness resource for black businesses. They join Exact Sciences, the Madison Black Chamber of Commerce, and Hope Community Capital as confirmed tenants of the hub. Edward Lee, the vice president of the Urban League, says that he is also in contact with over 50 black-owned businesses who have expressed interest in using the space. The placement of the Black Business Hub on South Park Street is significant to the project, says Madison Alder Sherry Carter. She says the area has undergone constant change and that she thinks the hub will bring a new entrepreneurial energy to South Madison. The building that's going to be built is so much more than a building. This building is going to bridge the gap that financial institutions have never addressed for people of color to thrive, to create, to succeed, is creating synergy to be able to dream and that dream becoming reality for many entrepreneurs and future entrepreneurs. The Black Business Hub is slated to open in early 2023. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie
Attorneys for State Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, who commissioned a partisan investigation into the 2020 elections, handed over more than 10,000 emails last week related to the probe to an independent watchdog group. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more. After a court order, Wisconsin State Assembly Speaker Robin Voss has handed over more than 10,000 emails related to the partisan review of the state's 2020 elections to the independent watchdog group American Oversight. The probe, commissioned by Voss and led by former state Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman, has a taxpayer-funded budget of $676,000. In a court hearing Thursday, Voss's attorney Ronald Stadler said not all of the documents are actually related to the investigation, as attorneys used keyword searches to sort the messages. There is somewhere between 10 and 20,000 emails that have been produced. There's a lot of duplicates, but it was done pursuant to agreed upon search terms between the parties. So if it hit on it, it's been produced, and that's why there is the, the volume that there is. Last month, Gableman released an interim report on the investigation, which contained essentially no new findings about the 2020 spring and fall elections. The report and Gableman's accompanying call to decertify the November election, which is impossible, drew bipartisan criticism. The documents released this week haven't yet been made public, but likely will be soon. American Oversight, which has filed other open records lawsuits concerning the probe, was still seeking additional messages on Voss's phone, which his attorneys say have been deleted. A digital forensics expert hired by Voss's attorney told the court Thursday that obtaining those deleted texts and emails would be difficult, if not impossible. Based on that testimony, Judge Valerie Bailey Wren barred further searches of Voss's or his associates' phones. She also raised concerns over Voss's personal privacy. And I don't see how you can separate his private messages from his public messages if, in fact, you could even recover deleted messages, which I think is doubtful. The document dump comes the week after Bailey Wren held Voss and the Republican-controlled State Assembly in contempt of court in a separate open records case brought by American Oversight. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports Voss and the Assembly have about a week to turn over records requested in that suit before both begin incurring fines of $1,000 per day. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Support for this reporting was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. As the pandemic began in 2020, working from home became the new normal. Rush hour traffic and the use of public transportation predictably dropped significantly. But as businesses began to move back to in-person, both weekday traffic and public transit ridership continue to see below pandemic levels of use. That's according to a new report from the Wisconsin Policy Forum, a nonpartisan policy research group looking to drive effective decision-making in Wisconsin. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Ari Brown, the lead author of the report with the Wisconsin Policy Forum, about the ramifications that the low ridership numbers may bring. So Ari, to begin, your report looked at both weekday traffic and public transit numbers in Wisconsin before and during the pandemic. Well, what did you find? And going off of that, how did you collect this information? Yeah, so uh, 
to start with the data, so we uh, we use data from the Wisconsin Department of Transportation. Basically, what they do is at hundreds of different sites around the state, they collect volume traffic. They basically have sensors that record how many cars pass, cars or trucks pass a certain point on the road every hour. And so we we were able to pull that information for about 240 different sites around the state that had good, accurate information for every month going back to March of 2019, so going a year before the pandemic started. We also wanted to look at public transportation and kind of see what the story was there. So that data comes from the Federal Transit Administration. They collect data on hundreds of different bus and train systems uh, around the country, you know, to, to take a look at how their ridership numbers are changing uh, and any kind of major changes that that go on to those systems. So we wanted to use this data to see, you know, we've been really interested in how, you know, commuting and how traveling in and around the state has changed over the course of the pandemic. Uh, one of the first pieces that we, we wrote after the, um, you know, stay-at-home order was issued in late March of 2020 was we wanted to look at how, our, how did traffic change like right away. So that was a thing that we did back then. We thought this was kind of a good interval to kind of take a step back and say, you know, we're two years past the pandemic starting. We're basically a year past when vaccines became really widely available. And and it seems like we're kind of at a point now where um, a lot of big measures are being lifted. Um, and there's just kind of a general sense that a lot of the, you know, public uh, legislation around the pandemic is starting to be lifted. So this is a time that you might start to see things, quote unquote, back to normal. Uh, in a way than they haven't been over the last two years. So what we found using this data was that our traffic volumes for, for our roads are a couple of percentage points below what they were right before the pandemic uh, in 2019 and early 2020. Um, if you go back a couple more years, about 2015 or 2016, we're about in line uh, with what travel numbers look like then. But the way that that has played out uh, has not really been even across uh, weekdays and weekends. So what we found was that if you look at the last year of data, so from April of 2021 to March of 2022, and compare that to the year, the 12 months before the pandemic, so March of 2019 to February of 2020, weekend traffic is only down by 0.2%. So it's basically exactly what it used to be prior to the pandemic, whereas uh, weekday traffic is down by uh, 4.4%. So a reduction that is at least noticeable enough that, that you can kind of start to see that dichotomy take place. So what we attribute that to is that there's just really been a change to commuting, you know, with the advent of working from home, uh, you have fewer people going in to offices, you have, you know, just less commuting happening generally, whereas weekend numbers largely look the way that they did right before the pandemic. We used hourly data to confirm that. Uh, so we, we use data from 16 sites in Dane and Milwaukee counties to look at what was kind of going on on uh, major highways and major roads by hour, looking only at weekdays. And we compared March of 2019 to March of 2022. And we found that, you know, the peaks during what we would call rush hour uh, have become considerably less intense now at, compared to March of 2019. So we really think that, that there's just been a big change to commuting patterns uh, and then the transit numbers really seem to indicate that that's also true. Um, transit, uh, so I, I mentioned that weekday traffic was down by about 4.4% uh, compared to pre-pandemic levels. Um, transit numbers are far below that in terms of a recovery. Uh, there has yet to be a single month where, um, where bus 
transit ridership um, across nine of the largest systems in Wisconsin uh, in nine of the biggest uh, cities around the state um, was down by anything uh, less than or sorry, more than 45 percent. It's been down by at least 45 percent in every single month um, since the pandemic started compared to the same month pre-pandemic. Um, and if you look in Madison specifically, those numbers are even more stark. It hasn't been better than 65% declines uh, compared to the same month pre-pandemic. So transit ridership has just really cratered um, and has not really shown the same kind of recovery that uh, that car traffic has shown, where you saw you know big decreases right at the beginning and then things kind of steadily started to increase over time. Uh, that has really not been the case with transit. And on the topic of public transit, something that I found really interesting in your report was that so obviously ridership went way down in the first year of the pandemic, but then in 2021, it sank even further, getting seeing even lower ridership numbers in 2020. Why have mm-hmm. public transit ridership numbers dropped so much while regular weekday traffic seems to slowly be recovering? This is such a good question, and I think it's one that uh, that we're still kind of grappling with. Of uh, you know, why did why did transit not see the same recovery that uh, that cars did? Um, one of the things that we kind of have thought about a little bit, one theory, um, is potentially that uh, just in general, um, and this is not, of course, true of everyone, but just in general, people tend to uh, use public transportation more for commuting than uh, than they would use cars for. So, for example, uh, you might, you know, drive to the grocery store, um, you know, drive to go and do errands because you can drive to go to a very specific spot. But um, you might take the bus uh, or a train to get to work um, because, uh, you know, the way that our cities are oriented, you have like business districts and there's a lot of jobs tend to be located in uh, a pretty concentrated area. So you can have public transportation go to that area. Um, so one thought is just that with more and more people working from home, uh, you have, um, you know, few, just less of a need for uh, public transportation uh, during commuting hours. Uh, and that might be why you've seen some of those declines. Uh, another potential reason is that, uh, especially if you think of a bus, you know, it's, it's a, an enclosed space holding uh, a good amount of people in it, uh, especially if they're tra- traveling to uh, a, a central business district. Um, and a big thing that we heard over and over again in the pandemic was, you know, stay six feet away from people, wear a mask. Uh, you don't want to be in enclosed spaces uh, with other folks. So um, there's definitely a potential that, you know, people that used to take public transportation uh, and still need to commute to get to a job might have said, you know, it's worth it for me at this point to, to spend a little bit of money and, and get a car because I don't want to, you know, share a space with all these other people. Um, so those are just a couple of potential reasons. But uh I do think it's just really interesting that we saw those continued declines in 2021. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of intuitive sense, but I think it's something that we found really interesting. And, and I think we're going to be wary of, uh, you know, in the future as well. And then at the end of your report there, you sort of talked about some of the ramifications of specifically what I'm interested in is the lower public transit ridership that's happening mm-hmm. across the state. What do you think that this could mean for the future of public transportation here in Wisconsin? Yeah, this is such a good question, too. Um, So one of the things that we point out is that uh, through, you know, a number of rounds of federal stimulus and then also the the federal infrastructure bill that was passed, um, both, you know, cities and the state have a lot of revenue to work with and a lot of revenue um, from those same sources so far has gone to transportation. Um, And I think it, you know, we're at this junction now where 
on we might be looking at a, a future that is different in terms of the transportation makeup in the state than it used to be. Uh, and I think it, you know, begs the question of, you know, when we spend on transportation, what should that look like? What would be a, you know, an efficient way to do that, uh, a way that would deliver the most benefit to uh, the residents of Wisconsin? Um, so I think it's worth considering, you know, in, in the brief that we point out that, um, you know, beyond things like transit routes and, and roadway improvements, looking at things like uh, parking and bicycle and pedestrian amenities, just things that people might be doing more now um, than they used to do uh, prior to the pandemic. Um, another really interesting uh, implication, I think, uh, when it comes to Madison, we, we point out that, you know, Madison's um, transit ridership numbers have dropped like a lot more than uh, most of the other transit systems we looked at. Um, but interestingly, if you, if you look back, uh, we note in the brief, we start uh, with 2007 being kind of our first year where uh, each of these nine systems has enough data for us to, to take a look at. Um, and if you go all the way back to 2007 um, and you compare it to 2019, kind of the last full non-pandemic year, um, Madison was the only one of the nine systems in which uh, bus ridership was higher in 2019 than it was in 2007. So just in general, you've had kind of bus ridership slowly declining in the state um, prior to the pandemic. Uh, and then the pandemic has only served to increase the intensity of that. Whereas in Madison, you actually had it increase. I've been talking with Ari Brown with the Wisconsin Policy Forum and the lead author on the report, which looked at traffic and public transportation levels before and during the COVID pandemic. You can read the full report online on the Wisconsin Policy Forum website. Ari, thank you so much for talking with me here today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. The Past Isn't Past looks back at the incarceration of LGBT people at the Buchenwald concentration camps. Bridging the Gap looks at burnout and how it's affecting our lives. And two new movie reviews. But for now, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us. A bait-and-tackle shop on Northport Drive has served the fishing community for decades. Along with an array of equipment, the proprietors of DNS Bait and Tackle have also provided in-depth local fishing knowledge to anglers, youth outreach, and weekly fishing reports. First opened in 1981 by Debbie and Steve Pappas, that would be the DNS in the name, the business has been owned by Gene and Sandy Dellinger since 1991. Now Gene and Sandy have sold it to new owners, Patrick and Ashley Hasberg. Last Friday, News Director Sholly Pittman spoke with Patrick Hasberg about the past, present, and future of DNS Bait and Tackle. So tell us about the store that you now own and about the fishing community your shop serves. Uh, yeah, well, like you said, uh, you know, DNS has been in business here since 1981 and uh, has gained a reputation as, uh, you know, a great spot to get high-quality live bait and fishing supplies. But, you know, also, more, maybe more importantly, it's a place where people can uh, gather and uh 
talk about fishing and ask us about uh, where the fish are biting locally. We have a lot of extensive knowledge of what's going on in the local area. Well, it's a location on Northport Drive as a community fishing space is um, uh, good because there's lots of waters around you. You know, there's the Cherokee Marsh, there's obviously the lakes. Um, Can you tell us about some of the common spots in uh, Madison to, to fish? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, we're right here on the north side, so a lot of the folks we see come through the door are fishing Cherokee Marsh, uh, the 113 Bridge uh, down here, which is kind of a tactor point between Cherokee Marsh and Lake Mendota. And then, of course, Lake Mendota, uh, we have access to Warner Park via the Warner Park boat launch right here on the north side. But uh, folks who come to Madison uh, from all over, a lot of folks stop by here first uh, to to just kind of get the scoop on all the area lakes, whether it's, uh, you know, Lake Monona or Wabisa or, you know, any any of the area lakes and even the rivers out to the Wisconsin River, uh, Mississippi River. And, you know, we've got our ear to the ground as far as uh, what's going on locally. So we try to point people in the right direction. Yeah. I'm curious um, how much local fishers uh, are wary of the PFAS fish consumption advisories. You know, PFAS is in most of the Yahara chain uh, waters. Um, What kind of conversation have you heard about that at the shop? It's definitely a concern with a lot of folks that come in. I know many anglers, regulars that come in here who uh, haven't stopped fishing on Lake Monona, but they have stopped keeping fish on Lake Monona because of the PFAS contamination issue. Uh, so they're moving, you know, into Lake Mendota to, and that they might keep fish in there or, uh, you know, only keeping fish from smaller lakes in the areas or the rivers because, uh, you know, the PFAS is a, certainly a, a big concern. Yeah. So we're having you on because you are the new owner of the shop, DNS Bait and Tackle, and you're taking over uh, with uh, Ashley Hasberg from Jean and Sandy Dellinger, who have owned the shop for uh, several decades. Um, Tell us about that transition, and when did you formally take over? Uh, We formally took over on March 1st, uh, so that was a big day for us. Uh, The transition was actually a a long term conversation that uh, I guess I was in the shop. Uh, I've been an angler my whole life, like you said, and I live here on the north side. I was in the shop and Gene mentioned that uh, he was thinking about retiring in a couple of years. Uh, things at my current job, well, about a year later, things at my current job were kind of falling apart and I was looking for something new and I, you know, wasn't ready to go back to a desk job. So, uh, you know, I started talking to Gene and, uh, you know, over the course of several months, we were able to work out a deal where everyone's happy and uh, you know we're excited uh, to take over and they're excited to see somebody you know carrying on the the legacy that they put out there for so many years. So I noticed in a little write-up about you that you are a trout angler and it's explicitly trout. Um, Can you are there communities around different types of fish Um, and can you tell us why why trout? Well, um, so I grew up fishing. Uh, I grew up in a small town called Blanchardville, southwest of here a little ways. Oh, yeah. A lot of people, I'm sure, know of it. Um, but the Pecatonica River runs through there, and I, I fished that uh, for many years. And, uh, you know, I was looking for other opportunities, and there's a lot of great trout streams around Blanchardville. So uh, as a teenager, I started fishing for trout, and that just carried into college. And um, I was using a regular spin fishing tackle and live bait as a teenager, but 
as I sort of branched out and explored other avenues of fishing, I got into fly fishing and that, yeah, really stuck with me. I've been um, doing that uh, almost exclusively. I still, I ice fish quite a bit and I, I get my boat out every now and then on the lakes or soak some worms with the, my boys and like around the Wisconsin river, but fly fishing for trout is my main uh, passion and there, there really is a community um, in, in all sides of fishing, but especially in the fly fishing community. I'm uh, uh, active in Trout Unlimited, the local chapter of Trout Unlimited. I served on the board there many years. And, um, you know, the, it's it's really great to go to the meetings uh, that our club has, and then the, uh, there's a lot of social, other social fly tying events where you can get together with other trout anglers and just kind of nerd out about uh, the thing that you love so much and uh, so you know it's a lot like anything else any any other group that you might be into uh, getting together with like-minded people is always a great time I wanted to ask you about something that was really cool that I found on your website, dsbait.com. Um, you mentioned uh, fishing on the lake and obviously that uh, ice fishing and that requires a knowing a lot about the present conditions and uh, <laughs> so you don't fall through. Um, and you have a fishing report. And according to your latest one, Cherokee Marsh is apparently a good place to fish this time of year. Um, and you just post this up on your website. Um, it seems like once a, every Friday, right? Can you tell us about this? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's a tradition that uh, Gene and Sandy started. Uh, Gene, uh, back even before uh, the internet, would uh, record a, a phone fishing report. So, And that, that actually still exists. So if, if people aren't online, uh, they can call our hotline is uh, 608-244- Three four seven four, and that spells out big fish. Um, so you can call that line and, and get a fishing report. But so wait, you know, that's six zero eight big fish. Two, yep, six zero eight big fish. That's four four three four seven four. Amazing! Yeah. How long or how long is this fishing report by phone? Oh gosh, I, I I'd have to ask Gene, but I, I bet at least twenty years it's been going on. Wow! So, yep. And then, uh, so he, 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 uh, once, you know, the internet came along, he put post that on the internet and Facebook. And so he'd been doing that. And I just, uh, you know, want to keep uh, that tradition, like a lot of everything, any, anything else here at the shop, I want to keep that going. So I've, uh, yeah, started posting my own reports. Uh, it, the old, uh, when Gene posted them, it would be, uh, him standing in front of a camera, but, uh, I added a little different level of, uh, interaction with Google Maps and kind of showing people, you know, the areas that I'm talking about around town because not everybody's going to know, you know, maybe where Picnic Point is or if you're, you know, if you're talking about specific spots around town and somebody's from out of town, they, you know, it helps to show them on a map, here's where I'm talking about. So, and that's gotten a lot of positive uh, response too from folks. Well, it's been so wonderful to uh, speak with you about the store and um, just about you, uh, your place in the community. Congratulations on being the new owner of DNS Bait and Tackle. Thanks so much. It's been my pleasure, and thanks for having me. Today is the anniversary of prisoners taking control of the infamous Buchenwald concentration camp on April 11, 1945. U.S. soldiers entered that afternoon, freeing most prisoners, but not those identified as gay or lesbian. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. 
Today's intro is a clip from a YouTube video on Rudolf Brazda, one of the last known survivors of Nazi persecution of gay people. He spent three years in Buchenwald. Rudolf Brazda was born in 1913 in Germany from Czechoslovakian parents. In the early 30s, he was living his homosexuality freely and openly. Today, April 11th, marks the day in 1945 that the prisoners at the infamous German concentration camp Buchenwald seized control of the camp. Later that afternoon, U.S. soldiers entered the camp and found more than 21,000 emaciated people. The Americans were liberators for most prisoners, but not for the LGBTQ people imprisoned in Buchenwald up to 15,000 of them and more in other Nazi camps. They finished their sentences in civil prisons. The Nazified Paragraph 175 law made homosexuality a crime. The U.S. occupation enforced the Nazi anti-gay law and in its first four years arrested 6,000 men. After the occupation, West Germany continued enforcement, convicting over 50,000 men before revoking the law in 1969. East Germany used the less restrictive pre-Nazi law, but still convicted 4,000 men before abolishing it in 1968. Gay people were imprisoned when Nazi Germany and its allies established more than 44,000 camps and other incarceration sites between 1933 and 1945. The Nazis instituted forced labor, detained enemies of the state, and implemented mass murder. Millions suffered and died or were killed. At first, most inmates were political prisoners at Buchenwald, such as Ernst Thalmann, the German Communist Party chair. He was arrested in 1933. In August of 1944, the SS murdered him in Buchenwald. Buchenwald camp had opened in 1937. Prisoners there included gays and lesbians, as well as Jews, political prisoners, Jehovah Witnesses, Roma, German military deserters, asocials, and prisoners of war. Buchenwald was one of the largest concentration camps, and some of its subcamps were even private enterprises like armament works and munitions factories. Buchenwald ballooned in 1938 after Kristallnacht, when the Nazis sent almost 10,000 Jews there. Over 250 people died from injuries suffered during their arrests and initial mistreatment in the camp. By 1941, doctors and scientists began carrying out medical experiments on camp prisoners that killed hundreds. By November 1942, camp commanders began officially ordering forced castrations of gay prisoners. By 1944, Danish physician Dr. Karl Lomalt began experiments that he claimed would cure homosexuality. They failed. As Soviet forces entered German-occupied Poland, the Germans evacuated thousands of prisoners from Nazi concentration camps through long, brutal marches. Thus, more than 10,000 weak and exhausted, mostly Jewish prisoners, arrived in Buchenwald in January 1945. By February, there were 112,000. By early April, the Germans again evacuated 28,000 prisoners, this time from Buchenwald to other camps. About a third of them died from exhaustion en route or shortly after their arrival or were shot by the SS. But the underground resistance of Buchenwald, whose members held key administrative posts in the camp, saved many lives. They obstructed Nazi orders and delayed the evacuations. In fact, German society had been more open to gay people prior to the Nazi rise. During the Weimar Republic, there were LGBTQ advocacy groups, newspapers, social clubs, and bars, especially in the major cities. But it took the end of the Cold War for German LGBTQ groups to be able to effectively raise public awareness 
of the Nazi persecution of gays in the 90s. Finally, the German government acknowledged prosecuted homosexuals as Nazi victims in 2002, overturned the Nazi-era homosexuality convictions, making victims eligible for monetary compensation. Then the German government opened four memorials to Nazi victims in Berlin. The largest, the Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe, opened in 2005. Then in May 2008, the Memorial to Homosexuals Persecuted Under Nazis was unveiled. Hearing about the memorial, Rudolf Brazda went public. He had spent three years in Buchenwald and was one of the last known survivors of Nazi persecution of gays. In April 2011, he was awarded the French Legion Denar for promoting awareness of LGBTQ people, death camp victims. Brazda had moved to France after the war. He called his years in Buchenwald a descent into hell. He told a reporter shortly before his death in 2011, After everything I have been through, I have no more fears. And that is our story for today. For the past isn't past, I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.47 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Not feeling the same passion for your job as you did when you first started? You may be experiencing burnout. This week on Bridging the Gap, feature contributor Teresa Yen talks about burnout and how to handle it when it occurs. You arrive at work and you sit down at your desk. You turn on your computer and see your inbox again, filled with endless emails that you never seem to finish replying to. Letting out a huge sigh, the workday begins. The same routines every day, doing the same things you have been doing for many years. You start to feel like you no longer have the passion you once had when you started this job, or that partaking in this activity no longer brings you a sense of fulfillment, but rather ongoing stress. Sound familiar? This is a sign that you are burnt out. Feeling burnt out is not a new sensation, but the term was not coined until the 1970s by psychologist Herbert Frudenberger. A term that was only used to describe the feeling of exhaustion in the workplace has now expanded to other aspects of our lives, and perhaps even heightened during the pandemic. This week, we'll be exploring the concept of burnout and why it's important for us to deal with it. This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring the connection and differences between generations. Burnout was originally only considered to be a phenomenon that occurred in the human service sector. Professions such as healthcare, law enforcement, legal services, or social work were the only ones that people had associated with burnout. This is because the initial questionnaire that was designed to measure burnout was limited to these professions only. The questionnaire was then later expanded with more generalized questions to catch up with the changing socioeconomic environment. More people started to record feeling burnt out in the late 20th century. Researchers find that the modern working life promotes high productivity and versatility. People are valued based on how much they can produce and how much more they can take on compared to others. People are expected to learn multiple skills and individualism is encouraged. Thus, the constant pressure to produce, surpass, and compete eventually leads a person to feel exhausted in the chase 
leading to burnout. There are three components of burnout, according to Frudenberger. Emily and Amelia Nagoski, authors of the book Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle, spoke about the three components of burnout in a TED interview series. So according to the original technical definition from Herbert Frudenberger in the 1970s, burnout, uh, which originally was inclusive only of the workplace but has expanded now, involves depersonalization, where you separate yourself emotionally from your work instead of investing yourself and feeling like it's meaningful. Decreased sense of accomplishment where you just keep working harder and harder for uh, less and less sense that what you are doing is making any difference and emotional exhaustion. Aside from the emotional responses, psychologists also find that the body physically reacts to the stress stemming from burnout. Melinda Wenner Moyer from the New York Times interviewed several doctors and researchers on the physical symptoms of burnout on your body. One of the most common symptoms is insomnia. Research has shown that stress alters the body hormone levels that regulate sleep, leading to poorer sleep quality. Another common sign is physical exhaustion, feeling like you're always worn out after a day's work. A change in eating habits might also occur due to higher stress levels restricting one's appetite. The pandemic came along and increased people's feelings of burnout. The home once being a place to escape to after work is now your place of work. The constant fear of catching the virus and spreading it to others. Not being able to see family that lived far away or visit friends. The never-ending rise and fall of cases makes it hard to plan for anything. In 2021, many people started quitting their jobs, resulting in the Great Resignation. Pew Research Center found that low pay was among the most cited reasons that people left their job. With the pandemic driving up living costs, the salary payment did not increase accordingly for people to adjust. Moreover, the pandemic got people rethinking their career paths and choosing for themselves whether it was worth it to stay at a job that caused them immense stress. How do we deal with burnout then? It's definitely not as easy as saying just relax. Emily and Amelia Nagoski spoke at the XOXO Festival about how to deal with the overwhelming feeling of stress that comes with burnout. Because our body responds to stress with the fight-or-flight response, we need to complete the stress cycle to let our body know that it is safe to release the tension. Physical activity, imagination, creative self-expression, and connection are the four ways to end your stress cycle. Go outside and do an activity. Watch a movie that takes you into another world. Express your emotions by writing, painting, singing, or any creative outlet. And talk to another person, any person that'll help you feel less alone in your stress. The Nagoski sisters concluded their speech by emphasizing the importance of facing those emotions and treating yourself with kindness. You have permission to take a break from whatever it is that is causing your stress. You are allowed to pause and turn toward your own body with kindness and compassion. We're telling you this because it turns out the cure for burnout is not self-care. It's all of us caring for each other. We are not built to do big things alone. We're built to do them together. together. For Bridging the Gap and WORT News, I'm Teresa Yen. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies on the small screen. The first movie is The Price of Freedom, a documentary about the recent history of gun violence and the NRA. It's part of the UW Haven Center's Social Cinema Series. 
The second film is As They Made Us, a well-done and sad film about a woman coping with her father's impending death. If all our government can do is send thoughts and prayers, then it's time for victims to be the change that we need to see. That was a clip from the trailer for The Price of Freedom, directed by Judd Ehrlich. This is a well-done documentary on modern gun violence in the history of the National Rifle Association, NRA. The Price of Freedom refers to the death toll that the gun lobby would dismiss as a simple cost of the Second Amendment rights. A remarkably chilling line in the film says, People in the U.S. are 25 times more likely to die by gun violence than any other developed nation in the world. This is repeated by the usual talking heads, but it is most effective when being uttered by family members of shooting victims. Some commentators emphasized that the fear of black people with guns played an integral role in this story and the greater likelihood of people of color to be victims of gun violence. The film also includes the NRA side by its former president, David Keene, and clips from its key figures, especially Harlan Carter, former Border Patrol agent. When Carter was 17, he was convicted of killing a 15-year-old Mexican, Ramon Cassiano. Carter claimed Cassiano knew about his family's stolen car. When Cassiano refused to go with Carter to Carter's house, he shot and killed Cassiano. The conviction was later overturned. No evidence was ever found connecting Cassiano to the car theft. Carter headed the Border Patrol from 1950 to 1957 and was in charge of the infamous Operation Wetback. The 60s assassinations changed public attitudes towards guns, leading to calls for gun control. In 1968, President Johnson pushed through Congress the National Gun Control Bill, which prohibited some purchases of firearms. It was the only time the NRA has supported a gun control bill. The group back then wasn't all that political. It was generally a group for sportsmen. That began to change in 1965, when Carter briefly held the presidency and led the group's first lobbying campaign. The incumbents lost out a national election, but came roaring back in 1977, packing the NRA National Convention, firing 60 staffers, and taking over with Carter as president. Carter led the group increasingly rightward until his departure in 1985. The film also talks about the key role of lawyer Wayne LaPierre, starting in the 80s, expanding the NRA's argument and lobbying for state laws supporting so-called self-defense, concealed carry, stand-your-ground laws, and other changes that flooded the nation with guns. The documentary also notes the reform movements and the many tragic shootings up until Sandy Hook and March for Our Lives. In 2020, there were over 45,000 deaths from gun violence. But there are reasons for hope. Last week's gun control advocates petitioned the Federal Trade Commission to investigate and regulate the gun industry for deceptive advertising. Recent court decisions have cost the gun companies. Sandy Hook Elementary victims settled for $73 million from Remington. And last year, a scandal-plagued NRA tried to declare bankruptcy. The film was shown online as part of the UW-Madison Havens Center Social Cinema Series. There are several more films in the series. Check out the Havens Wright Center wisc.edu for details. Now for a sad film about how a daughter faces her dad's death. Call the caregiver agency. I gotta fire another one. Oh, no, Mom. What did he do? He was giving your father marijuana in the form of cute little oh bears. God. Mom, he was one of the good ones. That was a clip from the trailer for As They Made Us, written, directed, and produced by Mayim Bialik. 
It's her first film. She's known as a comedian, but this is not a comedy. This is a fictionalized version of her life, the way she decided to mourn and remember her dad. She said she needed to write the story, but figured they'd get a real scriptwriter for it when she took her story around, but was invited to do it for the movie. She thought they would get a real director, but she had strong ideas about the film, so she ended up as the director. She has made a fine, touching film about flawed people with a stellar cast. Candace Bergen and Dustin Hoffman play the elderly, dependent parents. Abigail, played by Diana Agron, is convincing as their adult daughter, the family fixer. She has divorced and is raising two boys with her ex. Her brother Nathan, a fine Simon Helberg, is estranged from the family. Her parents are in denial about her dad's degenerative condition, so there are plenty of things for her to try to fix. All in all, an exceptional movie well worth seeing. It just started playing on several streaming services. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Emily Flick. Your reporter this evening was Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Teresa Yen, and Nicholas Lee for technical production. Willow Ike provided digital production. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night. <laughs>